You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Don't you just hate it when somebody starts out by saying, I really respect you, but I can't stand that. It happens to me a lot. I really respect you. I really respect what you do, but I can't believe in your God. I really respect what you do. Um, but to be honest, your God's a bit of a bigot. Like, look at what your God writes about different things and how your God destroys different people and how your God says some people are better than others. I had a woman uh, not too long ago say to me, I-, I respect what you do, but I can't worship your God. I can't come to your church because your God says that wives must always submit to husbands, and I can't get behind that. That feels misogynistic. I respect what you do, but how many of you have friends like this? How many of you have friends like this? First service, it was everybody. First service, somebody said, I respect what you do, but no. Um, this happens, right? This is, this is, uh, this is uh, you know, Scripture's difficult. Scripture's hard. You know what I want to do with this passage in particular? Um, I, I, I want to throw it out. What passage am I talking about? It's this, it says, wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. I want to toss it. I want to get rid of it. Did you guys know that Thomas Jefferson famously cut out passages of Scripture he didn't agree with? You know, he did that. So he was just reading the Bible that he loved. Um, And what I want to do is I want to say to my friends who tell me, I respect you, but I want to say, hey, I'm with you. Toss it. Get rid of it. Throw it away. Okay? uh, It's got nothing to do with us today. Let's leave it alone. Let's cut it out just like Thomas Jefferson, because the deal is that this, uh, um, you know, has caused oppression. It has caused pain. It's caused violence. Uh, A pastor uh, tells a story about a a, uh, domestic situation that escalated, and it got really, really bad, uh, and the husband uh, used physical violence against the wife. And the husband went to jail, and this pastor bails the husband out of jail, and they get together in a room, the husband and wife, and, and they're arguing, and, it, and it's getting louder and louder. And finally, the husband goes, do you see why I did what I did? She just won't submit to me. Do you see this? That's what happens when we look at this type of scripture without context. So let's do it. Let's cut it out, okay? Come on, people. <laughs> Thank you, Joanne. You're doing something. Joanne, the rest of you were like, okay, maybe. Joanne, Joanne was the only one that was like, no. So, so anyway... <laughs> Um, no we're not going to because you know what we'd be doing if we cut it out we'd be misusing scripture right and that's what this whole series is about it's about taking scripture and looking at it outside of its context and maybe not understanding exactly what God is trying to tell us in the midst of these bible passages in the midst of these letters in the midst of these stories in the midst of these poems that we're reading what is it that God is trying to tell us and if we just take this at face value we might think that God's trying to tell us there's a hierarchy women are better than men or men are better than women that was a Freudian slip Um, yeah yeah Men are, men are better than women, and, uh, and that's what we would think. And I, I'm, I've completely lost all of you. <laughs> i got to get on my A game here. <sighs> anyway, we might think that. But 
we're going to take a look at the context in which Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Okay, we're going to take a look at it. And as we take a look at it, I think there is a lot for us to learn, not only how husbands can operate with, uh, with, in relationships with wives, but how our church can operate in relationship with one another. So like I say every time, every week of this series, this is just the beginning, okay? It's not like after 2,000 years, I've finally figured it out and I'm telling you the truth, right? This is, this is my uh, opinion, what I've studied, what I've prayed through. This is the beginning. You can go home and look at it and read commentary and do the rest. And like I say every single week, we are allowed to disagree. You're allowed to disagree with me. The mark of a good unified church is a church that says we stand on the grace of Jesus Christ and then standing on that grace, we can disagree with one another and other things. That's okay. So if you disagree with me, that's not a big deal. Um, well, let's get started. So what is going on when Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians? Okay, uh, We need to know what a Greco-Roman household looks like. That's what we need to know. Uh, it doesn't look anything like an American household. Uh, what do we think of in America? We think of the husband, the wife, 2.4 kids, a dog, and the backyard, or in our case, just, you know, just give us a patio. Give us like four feet, right? Uh, that's what, that's what we, we think about. We think about that. Greco-Roman, the Greco-Roman household looked nothing at all like that. The first thing you need to do is you need to understand that the Greco-Roman household looked more like a business, Okay, it functioned as a business. The house wasn't someplace that you went uh, and you relaxed and you watched TV and it wasn't a place of respite after you got home. It's, it's not that. The Greco-Roman household was a place where your livelihood came from. You were making things there. Not only were you making things there, you had a lot of people living with you. You had extended family living with you. And so you had grandparents, aunts, your weird uncle that you didn't want to talk about, but you had to talk to because he was there. And you had children, and you had slaves, and you had mistresses, and concubines, and artisans, and workers. Most households in the Greco-Roman world had around 25 to 30 people living in them. Okay, So it's a lot different than 2.4 kids and a dog. Right? It's a very different situation. And you, had to re- you have to realize that what was being made in that house was the livelihood for that extended family. So if they made uh, you know, uh, clothes, well, then that's what everybody in the house did. Everybody made clothes. That was the household, okay? 25, 30 people doing that. So who's in charge of that? Well, there's somebody called the patron or the paterfamilias who is in charge of the household. Now, in Ephesus, where Paul is writing the letter, 99.9% of the time in Ephesus where Paul is writing this letter, the paterfamilias, the patron, the person in charge of the household was a man, 99.9% of the time. But if you look at the rest of Greco-Roman culture and other cities, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes women were the heads of the household. In fact, Scripture tells us that's true. Scripture tells us it's true when it comes uh, to uh, Lydia, uh, who is a maker of purple dye and invites Paul back to her household, and that's something else we can look at. But Paul, again, is writing to his context. Okay, And his context is Ephesus, and in Ephesus, the leader of the household, the CEO, if you will, the boss, is most always a man. Okay, so uh, there's some interesting things going on with this man. If this man wants a wife, what you didn't do is you didn't go on dates, you didn't cry at Jurassic World, you didn't, uh, you know, have chocolate hearts, you didn't do any of that stuff together, you didn't court each other, you didn't get engaged, it was a transaction. The paterfamilias, the CEO, this patron, would say, okay, it's time for me to have a wife. He'd make a transaction with somebody else in the city, and they'd, uh, he'd marry a girl. And this girl was usually around 16 or 17 years old. And she'd come into the house, and she had one job and one job only. Her 
only job was to create legitimate heirs. That was it. That was her only job. Her only job was to get pregnant. That's all. In fact, this paterfamilias usually had, uh, you know, women slaves that were concubines and had mistresses who were living in the house, okay? This was common throughout Ephesus. In fact, a Greek writer in the first century, his name is Desmondini, says this. He says, mistresses were kept for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives bear us legitimate children. So that's what was going on. Wives had no other responsibilities. They did not take care of the kids. The slaves took care of the kids. They did not teach the kids. Slaves taught the kids. They did not make the food. They didn't do anything. Their one job was to bear legitimate heirs. Their job was to make sure that this family business, this household, would move on after the father passed away. That was their job. Okay, so when it came to eating, eating was the great equalizer in a Greco-Roman household. Uh, you would eat at the table of the paterfamilias. If you were eating at that table, it meant you were equal to the paterfamilias. So the paterfamilias, the patron, would often have uh, his friends come over who were also patrons and also heads of households, and they would come over to eat. And you would come over to eat. And, and the women, and the, especially the wife, was not allowed to sit at the table with them. Like I said, the table's the great equalizer. It says that you are equal with me. If you're not sitting at the table, it means that you are no longer equal. You're not equal. So not only could the wife not sit at the table with her husband, she wasn't even allowed to talk to her husband. When she was done eating, she had to get up and walk away. And what some scholars would say is that's when the real talk happened. That's when the talk at the men's table began to happen. Same thing with slaves. Slaves were not allowed to eat at that table. So the table was this great equalizer that created a system of hierarchy. If you were at the table with the paterfamilias, you were equal. If not, anybody else was below. This is where we're coming from when we're talking about this letter that Paul has written to Ephesus. It is not an American home. It is not 2.4 kids. It's not our slab of concrete where we barbecue. It's not that. This is a household with 25 to 30 people that operates way more like a business. That's who he's talking to. So the most interesting thing for me is that in this business, whoever this paterfamilias um, ends up worshiping, the whole rest of the household has to worship too. So if this paterfamilias goes, I want to worship the goddess Athena, that means everybody in the household has to worship the goddess Athena from you know, the, the paterfamilias on down to the lowest slave. They all have to worship that goddess. And what will happen is that, um, say he's worshiping the goddess Athena, there's another household over there, and they worship the goddess Athena, they get together, and they create little house churches, right? That's what they're creating. So you have all these little churches. So if you chose to worship Jesus Christ, if the paterfamilias... The man on top said, I'm worshiping Jesus Christ. That means the entire household is going to worship Jesus Christ. That means the entire household is going to hang out with other households who worship Jesus Christ to find these little churches. Do we get that? Do we understand the context? All right, I just had to go through the context to get where we're going. All right. So now, Paul's writing a letter. And he's writing a letter to these paterfamiliuses. That's who he's writing a letter to. He's writing a letter to these patrons, to these households. That's, that's who he's writing to. And when he writes to these households, we can't start on, at Ephesians 5.22. We have to go back to the beginning, right back to Ephesians 5.1. And if you look at Ephesians 5.1, this is what it says. It says, follow God's example 
Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says, hey, paterfamilias, if you choose for your household to believe in Jesus Christ, you are going to walk in love. Well, what does walking in love look like? He gives a bunch of instructions on what walking in love looks like. And then the instruction that he gives in Ephesians 5.21, right before, he, he says, well, I have submit to your husbands. Before this, he says, paterfamilias, you who have, have taken God or have, have made your household believers in God, you are going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So basically what Paul's saying here is, hey, there is a new paterfamilias in town, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is now the head of your household. Jesus Christ is now the one that you look to, okay? And so he's saying, if you're going to have this household where Jesus Christ is the paterfamilias, it means you're going to love like Christ love. What does it look like to love like Christ love? It means you're going to submit. So before Paul talks to Anybody in the family, Paul talks to the paterfamilias, and he says, you, patron, the one in charge, if Christ is the head of your house, then your job is to submit. That's it. That's even before he gets anywhere. And then he goes on. Then Paul goes on. He's already given the instructions for the head of the household to submit. Then he says, okay, wives, now you submit to your husbands. Now you're doing that. Do, you, do we, get, we get how radical this is? Paul is asking the head of the house to submit first. They're the ones that have to submit first. And now, wives, submit to your husbands. That comes next. Of course. Of course wives are going to submit to their husbands. You know why? Because Christ is the head of the household. And if Christ is the head of the household, we're loving like Christ. Like Christ. And to love like Christ means that we're all submitting to one another. So of course the wife's going to submit to the husband. But get this. He goes like this, just in case he wasn't clear. He goes, husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. He says, love your wife. Again, how does Christ love? Christ loves by doing what? Submitting. By submitting. So once again, we have, hey, if Christ is the head of your house, you are going to submit. Wives, because this guy's the head of your house and he's picked Christ, you're going to submit. But guess what he's going to do for you? He's going to submit. You know what, men? I'm just going to speak to the men for 30 seconds. We conveniently leave that part out, don't we? We conveniently leave the part out that says, oh, wait, we're already submitting. And then he goes even further. Paul goes even further because then he starts talking about slaves. He goes, hey, slaves, uh, submit to your masters. Okay, we get it. Submit to your master. Hey, master, submit to your slaves. This is radical. This is breaking the culture. This is saying that this table that is the great equalizer is now reserved not just for the best of the best. This table is reserved for everybody. This now means that there is a love that is happening for everybody. It means that a woman who was a wife who was simply a transaction that provided legitimate heirs is now somebody that we love, that we care for, that we listen to, that we talk to. She wasn't even allowed in the same room as her husband. This means that slaves who we won in battle, who we took from somebody else, that means that they're at the same table as me. We think of them as subhuman. This breaks down all cultural barriers. This breaks down cultural structure. It crushes cultural hierarchy. This would have been ridiculous and shocking. Do we sort of understand why, all of a sudden, that the Roman Empire would be really suspicious of Christians? These people are crazy. They're crazy. Not only do they worship Jesus Christ, who we killed, right? Not only do they worship Jesus Christ that died, that's weak, 
but now they've completely crushed the hierarchy within their household. You believe that the paterfamilias, he submits to his wife. He's getting rid of all his concubines. He doesn't have any mistresses anymore. He does what his wife tells him to do now. She sits at the table with him. Man, if they're that wacky, if they're that crazy, maybe they're starting a revolution. We start to see how dangerous they become. Gordon Fee says this. He is a professor, and he says, No wonder the world had such difficulty with these early Christians and why they were considered to be haters of humanity because they so willingly broke the rules, not by tearing down structures, but by making the structures ultimately irrelevant. What makes our text so radically countercultural lies in Paul's urging that those who are filled with the Spirit and worship Christ as Lord have, 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 have totally transformed relationships within the household. What Paul has done is he said there is no more hierarchy. One is not better than the other. He says you are all welcome to the table in this new household. And then he reiterates it. He reiterates it in his letter to the Galatians. He says what? He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. You're all one in Jesus Christ. So he's reiterating this same idea. He's doing the same thing. When you have Christ as your paterfamilias, there is submission to each other. Now, Here's what I think we do. When we decide um, that this passage should be read out of context and that wives need to submit to their husbands, what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? The power structure of old, the Greco-Roman structure of old is, is the right one, that there is a hierarchy, that there is some who are better than others, that we don't need to submit, that we, we, we do have people that are more capable of making decisions than other people, and that's not gospel, that's the Greco-Roman Empire, which eventually enslaved and killed everybody. That's what that does. It does oppress. Our job, with the paterfamilias being Jesus Christ, is to submit in reverence to one another in the way that Christ submits to us. And yeah, this is for married couples. This is for husbands and wives. Definitely. Um, and some of you are like, I'm not even married, I'm single, and the weather's supposed to be getting better, I should have gone to the beach. But um, no, this is for all of us. This is for absolutely all of us. Remember back when I was telling you about what the Roman household would look like and how they all got together, right? If you worship Christ, you would get together with other Roman households that worship Christ. So when you, you all got together, you'd be reading Paul's letter. You'd be sitting there, and it'd be this letter that you're reading, and, and everybody would be looking around, first of all, just can you imagine if you're a slave and you're reading this letter and all of a sudden you look at your paterfamilias and he's like, looks like you're sitting at the table now. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a woman who, who isn't even permitted to talk to her husband who's just being used and the husband says, I need to get rid of anything else in my life that stops me from loving this person. And you, can you imagine as a household how you would start to say, oh my goodness, if we're really gonna make this city work, not just our households, this city work, we have to start submitting to one another. We have to start doing it. This is for the church. This is for our church. Our church. If Christ is the head of our church, then our job is to submit to one another in the same love that Christ has for us. That word submit's weird. It reminds me of Hulk Hogan. Does it remind you of that? It reminds me of like UCF or something. So what does submit mean? Because part of me is like, I don't want to be put in a chokehold. or You know, I don't know. It just has this weird connotation for me. So what does submit look like? What does submit mean? Well, uh, there are four types of love 
talked about in the Gospels. There's eros love, which is romantic, philia love, which is brotherly love. There's storge love, which is communal love. And then there's this love that's used quite a bit. It's agape love. How many people have heard of agape love before? You guys should have heard of it. Good. Agape love is simple. Agape, uh, a lot of us, we like to, we like to you know, feel comfy, like love makes us feel good. Gives us like the butterflies, right? Everybody's like, no. <laughs> um, agape love, agape love is not, is not the way we feel. Agape love is, um, is what we give. So agape love means it's, the, it's, it's what you're giving out. It's the thing you're giving out to other people. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What that translates to is so, you know, for God so agape the world. He wanted to give the world so incredibly much. Right? He was so fond of the world. He wanted to give it everything he could, so he gave it Jesus Christ. That's agape love. We are wired for agape love. I'm making up a new word. We are wired to agape one another. That's what we are wired to do. Okay, that's just true. We are. I asked this question first service. How many of you uh, were around for 9-11? How many? A few of you, right? And it's still pretty brutal to think about, actually. Uh, my family was all in New York. I had just moved to Philly, and I drove back as soon as they like, opened the highways back up. Um, you know what struck me the most? And I'll Tell me if this struck you the most. When you walk by the firehouses, I've never seen piles of flowers so high. Like, you guys remember, like, like 10, 12 feet, 15 feet high, like just flowers, like all these flowers. And, and I was so struck by that. And the reason I was so struck by that is because what people respond to most, what people are, are, you know, hold on to most is this idea of I give of myself for you at the sake of me. I give of myself for you and I'm sacrificing. So when these firefighters fought and lost their lives, you know, we honor that. We honor the, the, the giving of ourselves to others at our expense, right? That, that's agape love. That's what submission looks like. I had um, uh, a friend of mine who was in Bible study, and this is 10 years ago maybe, and his son was sick. His son had cancer, and uh, I'm happy to say his son doesn't have cancer any longer, but at the time, it was so painful for him. His son was about four years old, and it was so painful, and I'll never forget it. In Bible study, he said, um, he said I would gladly go to hell if it meant my son would no longer have cancer. Oh, agape love. It's agape. It's giving of yourself, giving to someone else at your expense. Um, we, we were wired for this. This is how we're wired. We took our kids to see that Inside Out movie, Disney Pixar. Yeah, did you guys see that? The theme of agape love is so strong in that movie. I'm not even kidding. I, like, I looked around, every adult in the room was just like, <laughs> just like weeping, <laughs> weeping. Every kid was like, what's going on? Kids were scared. But every adult, it's why it's because we are wired. We are wired for this agape love. We're wired to want to submit to this. And if we're going to read it the way Paul reads it, you know, this agape love. If we were going to translate the scripture this way, we would say, "Be imitators of God," meaning that we are to love ourselves as Christ loves us. We are to give ourselves up as Christ gives Himself up for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, as Christ loves the church. We would translate that. Husbands, give everything up to your wives as Christ gave everything up for the church. Do we see what the submission looks like? It looks like giving up. It looks like agape. And yet, and yet, it is by far the hardest love to give, the hardest thing to do. Oh, I'm married. 
I'm such a perfect husband, so we can't use me as an example. I have to pick somebody else. But some of us, uh, you know, some of us have uh, significant others. Some of us have spouses. Some of us have uh, are, are single, but we have really incredible friends. And so I think this fits for everybody. Um, but but how many of you keep score? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you keep score? Like. When, when someone's wife does something, you're like, oh, I'm going to remember that and bring that up in about six weeks. <laughs> oh, man. I wish they were more like this person over here because if they were more like that person over here, then they'd be complete, but they're not. They're over here and they're not complete yet. They need to change. Our best friends. This is, I have a great roommate, but I'm going to remember the time they didn't do the dishes and I'm going to bring that back up to them when, you know, when the electric bill comes. Like, this is the stuff we do. We keep score. We keep score. You know what keeping score is? Keeping score is the Roman structure. It's the Roman hierarchical structure. It says that not everybody's welcome to be at my table because I've kept some scores over here and you're not worthy to be at the table. You're not worthy to be at the great equalizer. And what happens is when we are strong enough, because it, it is strength, when we are strong enough to say, you know what, I don't keep score. Yes, you're not perfect. You're not who I... Uh, you know, I thought you were anything like that, but you are worthy of me giving up my love to you. That is when Christ becomes our paterfamilias. I've been saying this for the past three weeks. Self-reliance. We are a self-reliant bunch. How many of you moved here on your own? Exactly. You are a self-reliant group of people. And when we're self-reliant, what do we say? I don't want to be too dependent on anybody else. I want to be able to say I've done it on my own. The second I get too close to somebody, I push them away. I push them away because that's scary. They might think I'm weak. And the truth of the matter is that is part of the Roman hierarchical structure. It's a structure that made people slaves. It's a structure that made people uh, you know, uh, lose their ability to be free. Right? And if Christ is the paterfamilias, then we have the strength. Once again, the strength to give of ourselves to others and to say that I know it makes me feel vulnerable, but right now I have the strength to be vulnerable. And I know uh, right now it makes me feel like I'm making a big mistake, but I have the strength to, to depend on you because at the end of the day, it's the depending on each other that shows the love of Christ. I challenge you to make Christ the paterfamilias to depend on one another, to be vulnerable. And then a bunch of us me included, are living life transaction to transaction. No better than a husband trying to find a wife in this Greco-Roman structure. If they just do this for me, I'll do this for them, and we'll both win. If, if, I, if I just you know, am nice to this one person, this one person knows that person, that person can get me a new job, and everything's going to work out the way I need it to work out. We live lives in transactions. Some of us don't think of ourselves of having, as having any worth, and we think the only way people will love us is through transaction. If I give them this thing, then finally they'll love me. If, if I show up this way, if I act this way, if I share this thing, then they're going to finally see that I'm worthy. And that is a lie. It is an absolute lie. Because in Paul's household, in the household where Christ is the paterfamilias, everyone from the slave on up is absolutely worthy to come to the table. And what I want to tell you today more than anything else is there is a God who does not operate in transactions. There's not a God who says, well, if you do this thing, then you get this. Or if you say this prayer, then you're all set, you're all good, you're going to go here. Right? There's not a God that goes, if you follow 613 laws, everything's going to work out in your favor. We do not have a transactional God. We have a God who agapes us. 
We have a God who says, I am so incredibly fond of you that I want to give you myself through Jesus Christ. And through this death and resurrection, you are worthy. There are no scorecards. There, there, there's only strength to submit to one another. There's only strength to have agape love for one another. And all I have for you, all I want for you is to know that no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, no matter how big the skeletons are in your closet, no matter what you're going to do tomorrow, whatever the case, that I am so fond of you that I give myself to you over and over and over again. And in return, I invite you to come together in your community and to give yourself to others. Give yourself to others. Agape others. We're going to have communion right now. And... uh, and the ushers are going to come up and they're going to have uh, the body, uh, uh, bread that represents the body and juice that represents the blood. And this is an ultimate celebration. It is a celebration of a God who says, I love you, I agape you so much that I give you. I'm giving you my son. And it's through my son that there is nothing that's going to separate us. There are no transactions that break us apart. There is no hierarchy. None of you are better than the other that we all get to come and celebrate at this table. Will you join me? Let's pray. God, um, what great news. What great news that you have leveled the playing field. What great news that you have asked us to love each other the way that you love. What great news that signs of strength are actually to give to one another. What great news, God, that it is powerful to be dependent of one another. What great news that you find us worthy. And no matter what we do, you always find us worthy. What great news. God, mercy for when we don't believe it. Mercy for when we forget. Mercy for when we want to live our lives as transactions. Mercy when we want to live in a Greco-Roman household with a hierarchy, with us being near or close to the top. Lord, help us to level the playing field each and every day. Remember that we are all invited to the table. We pray this in your name. Amen.